Let's talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Captain America, the first Avenger, released in July 2011, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach introducing his own BFI retrospective, Martin Scorsese's steampunk adventure drama Hugo, or Jennifer Aniston in Horrible Bosses instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Captain America, the first Avenger, when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. The first proper masterpiece of the series, with not a single frame wasted, and a thrilling story confidently told, with Red Skull more frightening than he ever was in the comics. Also, Hayley Atwell is magnificent. That's what I had to say about it, though. And joining me to give her thoughts on Captain America the First Avenger is film historian Melanie Williams. Melanie, where can people find you? I teach film studies at the University of East Anglia, and I'm on their website and just generally out and about doing things. Okay, so before we go any further, Melanie, what happens in Captain America the First Avenger? We're introduced to the, I suppose, origin myth of Captain America, who is the First Avenger. The title gives us a a clue as to that. It's about a, a kind of skinny American guy becoming completely buffed up into a major league superhero and doing lots of daring do and exciting stuff during World War II. And as we'll come back to, I'd argue he's not even the star of the movie. But, Melanie, how much did you know about Captain America before you saw this? Oh, not very much. This is where I have to make a shameful admission. I feel very on the back foot talking about Marvel films. Obviously, I teach film and I teach courses on Hollywood cinema and a lot of the students I teach are very invested in Marvel films and the whole kind of Marvel cinematic universe and I always feel a bit like a kind of slightly out of touch mum, I think increasingly so. So I'm aware that there's this whole cinematic universe that a lot of people are really invested in. However, it's something that slightly passed me by. So I've kind of seen the odd film. I'm kind of aware of the key stuff but I feel like a complete fraud talking about any of this it's almost a bit overwhelming I sort of feel like it's passed me by and now I don't know where to start so this was a nice kind of point of entry I think. Well the interesting thing is that this technically if you put everything, all the TV series and all the films in order chronologically which some people out there have done believe me, this actually technically comes first historically so although it wasn't the first film, it's kind kind of an entry point because it sets up a lot of things that come back into it later. The really big thing is the Super Soldier program, which obviously is what turns Weedy Steve Rogers into Captain America. That plays a very big part later on in the films. It's why they changed as we discussed in the one on the Hulk, the Hulk's origin story, so that Bruce Banner sort of participating in the Super Soldier program, or the modern day equivalent of it, was what made him into the Hulk. But it all goes back to this, 
And it's interesting, there's very little acknowledgement in it at the present at all. I think the most striking thing is, in the opening shot, because it starts in the present where they find Captain America sort of frozen in the ice after the end of the movie. And it's interesting that to get to this sort of kind of steampunk technology in this artificially enhanced man from the 40s, they use a very modern laser to cut through the ice. And (laughs) I think that's kind of, that's the only concession you get to modernity in it, really. If we're allowed spoilers as well obviously the bit at the end where he's after his kind of rip van winkle experience when he kind of wakes up in the present day or what i think is the present day that sort of framing around it and whenever anybody digs up anything dodgy from like an arctic ice you just (laughs) have you not seen the thing this is a really bad idea if something's buried in ice it's usually best to leave it there it's interesting as well i was surprised when this came out that they actually acknowledge the original Captain America from the 40s at all because it's something that's quite often skirted over because there have not been that many attempts at doing Captain America either on television or in film possibly because of this convoluted backstory but there were a few like there was the weird TV movies in the 70s where I think he's the nephew of Steve Rogers or something and he has a magic motorbike you know kind of like a precursor <laughs> to Street Hawk they're not very good there's been a couple of cartoons and there's, as we'll come back to there was a serial in the 40s, a Republic cinema serial, based on the original Captain America, but generally they've tended to, because the Marvel thing when they brought him back in the 60s was, it was this same thing, that he'd, you know, he'd been in suspended animation since the Second World War, he came back in the present, formed the Avengers, etc, etc. They did some stories initially set during World War II to kind of rewrite that backstory to fit Mm. the present. And a couple of things that spun out from that do turn up in this. But I really did think they'd start with a new Captain America, a present day one. But now it's the original one. And I think it works brilliantly. I think it's almost like a costume drama, but for the steampunk elements. I think they do the sort of period detail really nicely. The kind of 1940s Brooklyn, but also 1940s London as well. It's done with real panache. And the bits where there are the kind of propaganda musical sequences, you can tell that somebody's watched their Betty Grable and their Busby Berkeley very closely because it's a really smart image of things like pin-up girl that has exactly those kinds of flag-waving dance routines in it. I mean, that's always quite a good gateway for old fogies like me if, if it's got some element of period drama. I mean, it doesn't have Judy Dench in, but at least it's got some nice kind of vintage styling that helped someone like me get into it. It really hasn't, despite rumours the contrary. It wasn't done with CGI, and I can say that for absolute certainty, because there's a bit where when Hydra steals the super soldier serum and he newly sort of woken up as Captain America chases after them down the street like jumping on the cars and so on catching up with them. Halfway through that I thought that's the Stanley Dark in Liverpool and I checked and it is it was all filmed in proper authentic location. Oh I didn't know that Obviously nowadays you can create anything like that at the click of a mouse almost Yeah. Even to the trained eye it generally looks real but they have filmed that in real locations. I think some of it was shot in Manchester as well. Yeah, I found that really added to it, the fact that you do know that it's in a reality, if that makes sense. This is where I can add some fascinating local knowledge, because the Avengers training camp is actually on my university campus. So the kind of big futuristic 
public building where they all kind of do their training. That is the uh, Sainsbury Centre, which is a big museum, which is on the um, University of East Anglia campus. It was quite exciting when they came to do the filming and people got threatened to have their phones taken away permanently if they tried to snap Robert Downey Jr. getting changed. Um, So that blending of kind of CGI, but also real locations, I've seen that in operation, you know, just five minutes away from where I work. So that was quite thrilling. Well, I don't know where they filmed the, quote, World Exposition of Tomorrow 1943. I suspect some of it was on the set, but some of it looks like it was outdoors. But you might not have spotted this because I don't know whether you've seen any of the Iron Man films or not. That's run by Howard Stark, Tony Stark's father. And it's Mm. basically foreshadowing the big set pieces that Tony Stark does, you know, with the eyes of the world on him, dancing around in the Iron Man costume. And in this, he demonstrates a flying car, works (laughs) for about 10 seconds, then falls to the ground. And he totally owns it with a joke about, we'll perfect it soon. And the (laughs) thing is, that car then goes on to appear, not just in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., because Phil Coulson drives it at various points, but it's also in, this is the point where we have to talk about Peggy Carter, who (laughs) is an absolutely brilliant character, and she then had her own two-series series, Agent Carter, in which Howard and the flying car and several other characters from this did appear. What did you make of Peggy? Because I think she's an astonishingly good character, even better here than she is in the comics. Oh, wow. Hayley Atwell's just incredibly beautiful. Looks a picture in those kind of 40s fashions, from her uniform to these kind of crisp white blouses, trench coats, red siren dresses. She looks absolutely incredible, but also is a kind of nice feisty character there's that connection between her and Steve which is not overplayed and I thought there are several sequences where I think she's particularly effective the bit towards the end when they're kind of on the radio together and this might be his final flight I thought this is definitely a nod to A Matter of Life and Death, the Powell and Pressburger film, where you've got David Niven doing his kind of last speech to the radio operator who he falls in love with. I thought this this is definitely a little kind of nod to those kind of Anglo-American propaganda films from the 1940s. But she's absolutely pitch perfect in this and incredibly watched you can see exactly why there's so much potential for a kind of spin-off where she's quite enigmatic. You want to know more about this character, I think. So you can see why you'd want to kind of develop that at greater length. Well, to me, she's the absolute standout character in this film. And I always love the way there's a balance between, as you say, they don't just make her a hard woman making it in a man's role. Because she is allowed touches of femininity. There's the contrast between, you know, the way she punches a soldier out cold for actually harassing her. <laughs> when they're testing the Captain America shield, she just picks up a gun and fires three times point blank at it <laughs> and says, it's rather effective. But equally, there's the look she gives to nobody in particular when they're watching reconnaissance film of Captain America on the mission and she sees he has her photo in the locket. Mm. And it's a very kind of like, she doesn't let her guard down in front of the men there, but it's the way she plays it with her face. But also, it's a blinking and missing moment, but when he emerges as Captain America, obviously with his shirt off after they've given him the super soldier serum, she actually for a second sort of touches his chest really curiously. Yes, and then I know. Herself. I thought that was such a good touch, really. With 
without her having to drape herself over him or whatever, it just said a lot about the character. Well, I suppose it's part of trying to get across that kind of mood being in period, you know, where obviously censorship of that time dictated that certain things had to be kind of alluded to or gestured in some kind of covert way rather than explicitly represented. So it's it's kind of in fitting with the, the kind of 1940s tone of it that it's quite restrained in that way. Hayley Atwell said in an interview that she approached the role thinking of sort of paraphrasing an old Ginger Rogers quote. She thought of Peggy as she can do anything Captain America can do but backwards in high heels. And I think that's absolutely <laughs> spot on really. <laughs> yeah, I mean that quote's such a gift, isn't it? It's brilliant. Yeah, I mean that might be pushing it a bit far um, <laughs> given that she's not been kind of in the embuffening machine and turned into a kind of superhuman but she's certainly a a very impressive woman who holds her own the kind of banter with Tommy Lee Jones doing his really kind of gruff stuff really well (laughs) you've got to be pretty formidable to be able to not vanish into the background when you've got actors of that caliber doing their thing and she does manage that well going back to the world exposition there are quite a few things referenced in this film where they are deep references for people who know their history. One of them is that the Expos got the suit used by the original wartime human torch. That's in there. <laughs> and there's very interesting things like when you were alluding to the song and dance routine, and it's got kind of a montage of the, the rise of Captain America's popularity. It not only refers, it's got a remount of one of the episodes of the Republic serial. Mm. It's also got some of the original comics being sold by newspaper vendors, as if to say they're part of continuity which is really brain stretching but the thing that's non-canonical that people don't really comment on about the world exposition is Steve's date is played by Jenna Coleman about a year before she was in Doctor Who oh was that her because I thought oh she looks a bit like her but I didn't actually yes no it is actually her her. so she'd been in this massive film before the thing she's arguably best known for Mm. I find that quite a weird turn of events that a character that wasn't universally popular let's just put it that way has a clear a character in one of the biggest films of the past decade. Yeah. Natalie Dormers. Isn't she the girl that kisses him? Yes. Yeah. He's... yeah. So you've kind of got these, like, through the casting, you've got these nods to these other massive media franchises going on at the same time. I think if you think about that stuff too much, it makes your head spin. But also, I mean, this is, again, where I feel really underqualified. Many of these things would just completely pass me by, particularly references forward or they just elude me the good thing about this film I felt is that I could watch it on its own terms without feeling like I wasn't getting it because I didn't get all the illusions it worked as a film in and of itself as well as a component of this much bigger cinematic universe but it was like massively enjoyable without knowing about all the things that it's going to lead to and that it kind of interacts with I do appreciate that you know I love like a kind of good blockbuster experience where I'm not left feeling puzzled and confused and bewildered by not quite getting what's going on. Well, that brings me round to one of 
my favourite observations about it, which is that, you know, you've got the battalion that are with him who were made, it's an amalgam of there's the Howling Commandos, who in the comics they were, originally they were the squadron with Nick Fury, played by Samuel L. Jackson, but in the comics it was slightly different, he was a Second World War veteran who then joined S.H.I.E.L.D., it's them and Bucky Barnes, who was the sidekick in the original comics, in that he was younger than Steve Rogers. In this, I think he's supposed to be the same age, but he's bigger, he's smarter, he's not really a sidekick, he's more intellectually, he's very much an equal, but when they're escaping during that train heist, he falls from the train, apparently to his death. And I remember people gasping in the cinema because obviously this major character <laughs> had apparently been killed off. And I'm sure there were people like me watching it thinking, oh my God, they're going to bring him back as the Winter Soldier. Because after about, <laughs> seriously, about 60 years, Bucky was suddenly resurrected from nowhere as this mysterious agent, the Winter Soldier, who'd similarly been frozen in ice. There's <laughs> clearly a lot of it. Yes, there is. But that's a perfect example of a reference that you didn't have to know about, which later became very important, because to anyone watching it, it's such a shock moment. But to anyone who knows yeah, it, it's yeah. a different kind of shock moment. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- without knowing the kind of implications or possibilities of that, it's still, you know, people going on a zip wire onto the back of a train that's moving. I mean, that's that's just exciting stuff, isn't it? Yeah, that dropping down into a chasm and not being able to quite get somebody before they fall. I mean, that's a, such a staple of suspense cinema. Hitchcock knew a thing or two about that kind of stuff. But it's, you know, it's, it's handled really effectively. And I can imagine on a big screen that would be a kind of gasp-worthy moment. Well, speaking of The Winter Soldier, that brings me on to the film's treatment of the Nazis, which I think is quite interesting because they're portrayed as they're not really aligned to the Nazi party anymore. They're part of Hydra, the, the substitute Nazis basically that dominate the first two phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, they've been a long-standing antagonist in the comics where they've got the same aims, but even worse. They basically want to make everyone the same. But the two main protagonists in that, you've got Johann Schmidt, who becomes the Red Skull. He tries a super soldier formula on himself and becomes basically a Red Skull. You've also got Dr. Zola, played by Toby Jones, who later comes back in. He does appear in Agent Carter as you don't know it at that point he's posing as a member of S.H.I.E.L.D. but he's not he's still aligned to Hydra but he comes back in the Winter Soldier having died years previously as a computer that he uploaded the consciousness to in the 70s I know that doesn't happen in this film but the idea that you've got these two this disfigured freak and somebody who just exists as code wanting to implement the master race that's quite a subtle way of uh, ridiculing that aim it isn't a typical way of dealing with Nazis in what's basically a period drama. No, I mean, like you say, it's managing to sort of find an organisation worse than the Nazis, you know, with two-handed salutes instead of one (laughs) is really, really going for it, I think. And Hugo Weaving is a terrific villain. There's a reason why he's perpetually cast in villainous roles, and it's because he's jolly good at being thoroughly evil. And the moment when he kind of removes his face, which again is so a fantastic thing to do if you're able to to reveal the red skull it's it's just fantastic stuff fiery pits uh, you know that's that's kind of going on in the background all the iconography you you'd want you know it's it's no coincidence i think that joe johnston the director of this is involved in the special effects for raiders of the lost ark because 
clearly right, has kind yes. of melting Nazi faces, especially some of his. Toby Jones is interesting as well, because I was thinking at points his kind of German accent veered slightly into the territory of a low, a low, you know, <laughs> felt a little bit kind of, you know, Gruber from a low, a low But again, I mean, getting great British character actors to be Nazis in big, fantastic blockbuster films has a rich and long heritage. And Toby Jones is a fantastic inheritor of that. He's great. And I think also that idea of, you know, the kind of Nazi scientists being co-opted by the US is is not mythology. It's historical fact. Werner von Braun, the Nazi scientist who masterminded the V2 rocket, was co-opted into NASA. So these things have their kind of historical analogies that they point towards, I think, subtly. But they're telling us something about geopolitics and identity without wanting to sound too film studies lecturer about this. But they are in and of themselves entertaining, but they're also gesturing towards these bigger questions, I think. Well, that brings me around to an observation that I think needs to be made here about something else entirely, which is, weirdly, this character came up when you were on Looks Unfamiliar, which is there was a rumour going around last week about a Captain Britain film, which oh, yeah. led a lot of people on Twitter who obviously had no idea what they were talking about, no idea that Captain Britain is now a Muslim woman, but they were all saying, oh, I see, they're pandering to UKIP now, etc, etc. Now, Captain Britain was invented in the 70s, partly in response to the rise of the National Front, and at numerous points he fought the Red Skull. So, I think he's on our side. <laughs> Will we ever do a podcast without mentioning him? Or her, rather? The thing about Captain America that I remember from my own youth is that there was a really crappy cartoon that used to get shown a lot. It was Captain America and his mighty shield, I think. And um, it's kind of put me off the whole character a bit. When Captain America throws his mighty shield All those who chose to oppose his shield must yield If he's led to a fight and a duel is doomed And the red and the white and the blue Well, on to the current Mighty Shield thrower, which is we haven't really said much about Chris Evans. I think he is absolutely fantastic because you can see the progression over the films from this because in this he's a plucky but totally ineffectual kid who becomes this well super soldier but waking up in the present in the first couple of films he said he plays it as really confused he doesn't quite get what's going on all the pop culture references are lost on him and he becomes more and more confident and comfortable with the present as they go on to the extent that repeatedly in this one he says to people I can keep doing this all day and he then gets when he confronts himself from the past when they're trying to get the Infinity Stones back. The past Captain America says, I can do this all day. And he says, yes, I know. (laughs) It's a great way of sort of marking the character progression, but I really think he nails it. There's a quietness to his performance. It's not bombastic in any way. No, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the film about what constitutes genuine heroism and and courage and and that sense of you know it being important that it's someone who's known weakness so that when they are empowered physically they'll kind of remember what it's like or the kind of meaning of that power whereas someone who's kind of always had that in their possession won't understand that in the same way and I think his performance does convey that sense of bafflement really at what's changed physically and how that 
changes the way that he behaves and that he's responded to by other characters. I mean, it's quite nuanced. And again, thinking back to that kind of rubbishy cartoon with the lantern jeweled guy with a shield just knocking seven bells out of whatever. Obviously, this is a world away from that. But I think in terms of that character development, and it's linked into the relationship with um, Agent Carter as well, you know, how he changes from Mr. Muscle to Marlon Brando, you know, from this kind of (laughs) wimpy guy to it's like the charles atlas adverts you know you too can have a body like mine and you go from being the skinny guy that gets sand kicked in his face on the beach to the kind of big muscle-bound bodybuilder i mean the irony is i think he's just as attractive when he's kind of skinny and wimpy (laughs) as he is when he's all kind of buffed up but he manages to kind of carry both of those things off quite charmingly i think well we don't really get technically a post-credit scene in this i mean we do but it's basically a cut down scene from avengers assemble but i actually think he plays the contrast well between what is the last scene of the film where he wakes up in the present as you alluded to he realizes that the baseball game on the radio is one he was actually at and so somebody's pulling his leg and he gets up and he realizes it's the present and he goes out and he sees all the digital advertising hoardings and looks confused but then after the credits it cuts to him basically demolishing a punch bag out of frustration and then nick fury appears and he more or less says have you got got a mission for me sir it's like he's starting to find his place in the presence yeah it, i mean is he just angry because he missed his date with Haley atwell i mean to be fair, I, I can sympathize with that i mean i would be very angry <laughs> if, if that had happened i mean i think that exit line before the credits you know i had a date is a really smart like little comment to end on as well well that brings me on to the last thing i have to ask which is melanie if you had the ability to do anything cap in America can do but backwards in high heels what would you use it for? <laughs> well I've been putting up some shelves so I think <laughs> America's strength would be um, would be quite useful for that really um, yeah DIY mainly <laughs> Melody it's been brilliant thank you and Excelsior thank you very much if you've enjoyed this don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.